Chapter Eight of Being a Boy by Charles Dudley Warner. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mark Penfold. Chapter Eight, The Coming of Thanksgiving. One of the best things in farming is gathering the chestnuts, hickory nuts, butternuts, and even beech nuts in the late fall after the frosts have cracked the husks and the high winds have shaken them and the colored leaves have strewn the ground. On a bright October day, when the air is full of golden sunshine, there is nothing quite so exhilarating as going nutting, nor is the pleasure of it altogether destroyed for the boy by the consideration that he is making himself useful in obtaining supplies for the winter household. The getting in of potatoes and corn is a different thing. That is the prose, but nutting is the poetry of farm life. I am not sure but the boy would find it very irksome, though, if he were obliged to work at nut gathering in order to procure food for the family. He is willing to make himself useful in his own way. The Italian boy, who works day after day at a huge pile of pine cones, pounding and cracking them and taking out the long seeds which are sold and eaten, as we eat nuts, and which are almost as good as pumpkin seeds, another favorite with the Italians, probably does not see the fun of nutting. Indeed, if the farmer boy here were set at pounding off the walnut shucks and opening the prickly chestnut burrs as a task, he would think himself an ill-used boy. What a hardship the prickles in his fingers would be! But now he digs them out with his jackknife and enjoys the process on the whole. The boy is willing to do any amount of work if it is called play. In nutting the squirrel is not more nimble and industrious than the boy. I like to see a crowd of boys swarm over a chestnut grove. They leave a desert behind them like the seventeen-year locusts. To climb a tree and shake it, to club it, to strip it of its fruit, and pass to the next, is the sport of a brief time. I have seen a legion of boys scamper over our grass plot under the chestnut trees, each one as active as if he were a new patent-picking machine, sweeping the ground clean of nuts, and disappear over the hill before I could go to the door and speak to them about it. Indeed, I have noticed that boys don't care much for conversation with the owners of fruit trees. They could speedily make their fortunes if they would work as rapidly in cotton fields. I have never seen anything like it except a flock of turkeys removing the grasshoppers from a piece of pasture. Perhaps it is not generally known that we get the idea of some of our best military maneuvers from the turkey. The deploying of the skirmish line in advance of an army is one of them. The drum major of our holiday militia companies is copied exactly from the turkey gobbler. He has the same splendid appearance, the same proud step, and the same martial aspect. The gobbler does not lead his forces in the field, but goes behind them like the colonel of a regiment, so that he can see every part of the line and direct its movements. This resemblance is one of the most singular things in natural history. I like to watch the gobbler maneuvering his forces in a grasshopper field. He throws out his company of two dozen turkeys in a crescent-shaped skirmish line, the number disposed at equal distances, while he walks majestically in the rear. They advance rapidly, picking right and left with military precision, killing the foe and disposing of the dead bodies with the same peck. Nobody has yet discovered how many grasshoppers a turkey will hold, but he is very much like a boy at a Thanksgiving dinner. He keeps on eating as long as the supplies last. The gobbler in one of these raids does not condescend to grab a single grasshopper, at least not while anybody is watching him but I suppose he makes up for it when his dignity cannot be injured by having spectators of his veracity. Perhaps he falls upon the grasshoppers when they are driven into a corner of the field. 
but he is only fattening himself for destruction. Like all greedy persons, he comes to a bad end, and if the turkeys had any Sunday school, they would be taught this. The New England boy used to look forward to Thanksgiving as the great event of the year. He was apt to get stents set him, so much corn to husk, for instance, before that day, so that he could have an extra play spell, and in order to gain a day or two, he would work at his task with a rapidity of half a dozen boys. He always had the day after Thanksgiving as a holiday, and this was the day he counted on. Thanksgiving itself was rather an awful festival, very much like Sunday except for the enormous dinner, which filled his imagination for months before as completely as it did his stomach for that day and a week after. There was an impression in the house that that dinner was the most important event since the landing from the Mayflower. Heliogabalus, who did not resemble a pilgrim father at all, but who had prepared for himself in this day some very sumptuous banquets in Rome, and ate a great deal of the best he could get, and liked peacocks stuffed with asafoetida for one thing, never had anything like a Thanksgiving dinner. For do you suppose that he, or Sardanopolis either, ever had twenty-four different kinds of pie at one dinner? Therein many a New England boy is greater than the Roman emperor or the Assyrian king, and these were among the most luxurious eaters of their day and generation. But something more is necessary to make good men than plenty to eat, as Heliogabalus no doubt found when his head was cut off. Cutting off the head was a mode the people had of expressing disapproval of their conspicuous men. Nowadays they elect them to a higher office, or give them a mission to some foreign country if they do not do well where they are. For days and days before Thanksgiving the boy was kept at work evenings, pounding and paring and cutting up and mixing, not being allowed to taste much, until the world seemed to him to be made of fragrant spices, green fruit, raisins, and pastry, a world that he was only yet allowed to enjoy through his nose. How filled the house was with the most delicious smells, the mince pies that were made! If John had been shut in solid walls with them piled about him, he couldn't have eaten his way out in four weeks. There were dainties enough cooked in those two weeks to have made the entire year luscious with good living, if they had been scattered along in it. But people were probably all the better for scrimping themselves a little in order to make this a great feast. And it was not by any means over in a day. There were weeks deep of chicken pie and other pastry. The cold buttery was a cave of Aladdin, and it took a long time to excavate all its riches. Thanksgiving Day itself was a heavy day, the hilarity of it being so subdued by going to meeting, and the universal wearing of the Sunday clothes, that the boy couldn't see it. But if he felt little exhilaration, he ate a great deal. The next day was the real holiday. Then were the merry-making parties, and perhaps the skatings and sleigh-rides, for the freezing weather came before the governor's proclamation in many parts of New England. The night after Thanksgiving occurred, perhaps, the first real party that the boy had ever attended, with live girls in it, dressed so bewitchingly. And there he heard those philandering songs, and played those sweet games of forfeits, which put him quite beside himself, and kept him awake that night till the rooster crowed at the end of his first chicken nap. What a new world did that party open to him! I think it likely that he saw there, and probably did not dare say ten words to, some tall graceful girl, much older than himself, who seemed to him like a new order of being. He could see her face just as plainly in the darkness of his chamber. He wondered if she noticed how awkward he was, and how short his trouser legs were. He blushed as he thought of his rather ill-fitting shoes, and determined then and there that he wouldn't be put off with a ribbon any longer, but would have a young man's necktie. 
It was somewhat painful, thinking the party over, but it was delicious, too. He did not think, probably, that he would die for that tall, handsome girl. He did not put it exactly in that way. But he rather resolved to live for her, which might in the end amount to the same thing. At least he thought that nobody would live to speak twice disrespectfully of her in his presence. End of chapter 8 Recording by Mark Penfold